When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef and they're 100%. Mm, they're so good they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to talk Pistons with Dan Feldman and Piston Powered and Pro Basketball Talk for a while, and the timing on it actually worked out pretty well because we ended up talking right after the trade deadline. So we started out with about 15 minutes of Pistons talk, including the Reggie Jackson trade and the Jonas Jerebko, Sean Prince trade. So that was great to have that conversation, talked about their chances of making the playoffs. And then we went broader into the NBA. So we talked about winners and losers and how everything was shaking out. It was a great conversation, runs about 45 minutes. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So I think we both thought that for a little while this was going to be a quiet deadline for the Pistons, and then things certainly turned around. I think we have to start at the top, which is the Reggie Jackson trade. So what was your biggest takeaway from that move? Uh, My biggest takeaway is that the Pistons got a potential star, not somebody who's a lock to be a star or even probable to be a star, but a potential star, somebody who's young enough to get to that level, who's shown enough promise, without giving up a single player who's likely to be a starter on a good team. I don't think Kyle Singler's quite at that level, although he's young enough where he could get there. D.J. Augustine is probably too small to be that type of point guard. And they gave up a couple second-rounders who are never likely to become starters on good teams. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's a really good point. Interesting part of that for me is that even if, let's say, Reggie Jackson leaves after the season, he's a restricted free agent, and so the Pistons can still get value from that, even if the worst-case scenario happens, because that's what happened with New Orleans and Tyreek Evans. He got overpaid somewhere else, but they still got a nice piece in Grievous Vasquez out of it. Well, I think worst-case scenario is something Pistons fans are a little more familiar with, with Greg Monroe, where he takes the the qualifying offer, then it's tough to trade him. It's a sign he's trying to leave as an unrestricted free agent the following year. 
So I don't think it's a lock they're going to get value for Jackson if it comes to that. Uh, hopefully it won't come to that again for Detroit, though. That's a great point. I hadn't thought about that, but you're a lot closer to it with Monroe. How do you think that – I think to me it seems like Jackson fills an immediate need on this team and is for that reason a huge benefit because they're trying for the playoff push right now. They're only two games out. Well, DJ Augustine had been playing very well, so it might come down to do you think DJ Augustine could keep that up? Maybe Reggie Jackson is going to be better than Augustine would be for the rest of the season. But even if he's as good as Augustine has been as the fill-in starter for Brandon Jennings, you know, I'd consider that pretty good for the rest of the season. I'm not sure it's enough to get Detroit into the playoffs. It's a crowded race for those last two spots in the East, but it'd certainly give him a chance. Yeah, and have you given any thought to how, let's assuming he comes back, to how Reggie fits on this team more long-term once Brandon Jennings comes back healthy, or do you think that they'll make a decision one way or the other over the offseason? Well, I don't think they necessarily have to do it over the offseason. Jennings is under contract for one more year at about $8 million. Uh, Reggie Jackson can play a little bit of two-guard. So I, I do think it will ultimately come down to one or the other. Uh, but they could stretch that out in the next season before they make a choice. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. And the other component of that is that as Jennings' contract got lampooned for a little while about the value, as contracts are going up and as their value of the CBA and the value of the salary cap is going up, his contract becomes so much more palatable. So if they end up choosing one way or the other, they're in more of a situation where they should be able to get an asset of some form for one for whoever they don't want, which is a nice situation to be in. Right. The biggest knock on, on Jennings' contract, and obviously there are bigger concerns with him as a player, especially I'll come back with the injury, uh, but the biggest knock on the contract is that you know it'll expire before that big summer of 2016 when the cap skyrockets, or it'll expire that summer. So he's not going to be this huge value for the supersized cap, but yeah, even as the cap goes up next year, he'll still be a solid value, if healthy and productive like he had been. And as you said, the idea of the supersized cap is important for Reggie Jackson because he's in this class, assuming he signs a deal this offseason, you mentioned the qualifying offer concept, which is there, that there are some people out there, and I I think there's a great point to it considering the players rejected smoothing, that basically any player signed this offseason who's young and not going to be just basically a dead weight is going to be a huge asset in the long term because the contracts they're signing are just going to be so low compared to what is going to be the new normal two years from now. Yeah, that's a very good point, although I wonder if somebody like Reggie Jackson maybe stretches the limit of that. Am I crazy for thinking it's possible he gets a max contract? And if he does, is he the value at that even in the new cap? I'm not sure. I don't think he's going to get that because what we're seeing with point guards is that while they're incredibly valuable, there are so many of them in the league that the value in terms of teams trading for them and teams paying them isn't that high unless you're clearly in that level. And I think if he plays to that level for the rest of the time to warrant that, then the Pistons are going to be pretty happy with the results because I think if he plays well enough to get a max deal, they're playing in the playoffs. Yeah, I I think that's probably the case. But it only takes one team. I I think you're right. I don't think he's going to get a max offer. I don't think he deserves a max offer. I think just the setup of the league with so many point guards means he won't, but it only takes one team, and that's what makes me a little nervous about it. Considering the price that Isaiah Thomas ended up going for, would you have kind of in your brain thought, oh, well, you know, could have gotten him for a little bit less, but at the same time, the Pistons didn't give up much for Reggie in the first place, so maybe they maybe they did a, 
a kind of a comparable move in that sense. Would it, would you have been happy if they had gone the other way with that? I think the Pistons got a better deal than the Celtics got for Isaiah Thomas. I don't love the idea of giving up a, a first-round pick to get somebody of that caliber. However, uh, like you, you've said, the, the big catch is the contract that he signed in these current conditions is only going to get more favorable. So if you get a guy who's locked in like that, yeah, there's some value with it. But I like the move the Pistons made for Reggie Jackson a little bit more than the, the Celtics move for Isaiah Thomas. If you had to, knowing what you know now, if you had to predict which one of the point guards that they have on roster now will be on Detroit's roster at the beginning of training camp in 20, let's say at the beginning of training camp a year from now, so let's say that would be fall of 2016, what would be your guess? Oh boy. Oh man, that's a very good, very tough question. I'm going to say Reggie Jackson and uh, Spencer Dinwiddie would be entering the the final year of his contract. It's an unguaranteed year, so I could see him not making it. But I, I think Detroit would not have made this trade for Reggie Jackson if the, if the Pistons weren't prepared to offer him a big deal this summer or match a big deal this summer. I do think there's the risk he signs the qualifying offer, though, because, one, I think he'll meet the starter criteria now. And, two, he's going, he'd be setting himself up to become an unrestricted free agent in 2016. So I, I think the Pistons will lock him up, and I think he'll be there, but I, I don't think it's a lock, and Dinwiddie has an unguaranteed contract for that two seasons out from now, so he could be gone, but I think with his injury history, the Pistons will give him a little bit of a leash to develop. As a big fan of Spencer Dinwiddie from college and as a draft prospect, what have you seen or what have you heard about him so far? Well, the, the Pistons tried to stick him in the rotation after Brandon Jennings went down, and then they went out and got John Lucas, who's been a huge upgrade, uh, which should, should say a lot about Dinwiddie. He's just not ready. He's, he's in over his head at this point. But he had no summer league. He had only a limited training camp because of the injury he suffered at Colorado. He deserves a little bit more of a chance before we write him off, but so far the returns are not good. I think that makes sense. And also, to me, he's better as a secondary ball handler who can slide into primary as opposed to as a primary. And from what I understand, he was on the ball a lot with the Pistons when he was playing. Is that right? Yeah, I think you're right on both counts. I don't know if I've seen enough of him at the NBA level uh, to get a good sense of how that translates. But from what I saw coming out of college, I I sort of shared that, that opinion that yeah, maybe he's a little bit better for his ability to swing between the guard positions rather than being your permanent one guard. But that's what the Pistons needed him to do. I, I don't think the Pistons are handling him wrong. He was filling the role they needed. But in the long run, maybe they can do a better job of putting him in that position to be a little bit more of a combo guard. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And we'll move on to a slightly less sunnier topic for the Pistons, and that's the other trade they made. And so they reacquired uh, Tayshaun they reacquired Tayshon Prince at the cost of Jonas Rebko and Wuji Datome. And you correct my pronunciation on either of those if it was wrong. I think Jonas Trebko and Luigi Datome was was pretty spot on. Woohoo! But I'm congratulations. Sure I'm, 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 you you I'm did better than the Pistons on that. I'm happier with that than you are with the trade, I assume. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan. I, I think uh, Jonas Jarebko is a better and younger and cheaper small forward than Tayshawn Prince at this point. So I, I really don't see the logic of making this deal. And it's not like the Pistons had this glaring hole. I mean, obviously the, it was not a true strength, but I'm not sure Tayshawn Prince makes them markedly better. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're not going to have Jarebko, if you're committed to dealing Jarebko because he's unhappy, he doesn't have a role, and you just want to do him a favor, then Prince is okay, I guess. Uh, with Kyle Sigler going to the Thunder, it's a slightly bigger need, or maybe even more than slightly. It's a significantly bigger need to have that small forward. Uh, but I, I just don't see Tayshawn Prince as the answer. And you could have played Jonas Drebko more. I'm sure he'd stop complaining if he were getting minutes. Yeah, that's true. I, they kind of had created a resolution of their own problem, but then they still treated it as a problem. <laughs> exactly. How do you think that Singer's going to fare on a new team? And I, I've been a big fan of his since high school, but and he's I think he's done well considering his draft position, but he's going to a very different situation now. This will be a good fit for him. The Pistons were asking too much of him, and, and he was struggling at times. Uh, but he's become a, a good, reliable three-point shooter at the NBA level. He'll get open looks playing with Kevin Durant with Russell Westbrook. He also defends well enough that he'll, he'll do okay in the team system. You know, he's, he's going to defend hard, and, and that'll cover for any lateral quickness issues he has. He's not going to be asked to defend the top players, you know, that the Thunder are going against. He'll, he'll be a good fit for them. And also, something that I've seen in Kyle for a long time is I think he's a really good passer for his position and his size, and that's something that Oklahoma City can always use considering their surrounding talent. Yeah, I'm with you. The Pistons, you know, would go through spurts here and there of asking him to do that, but for the most part, they wouldn't. Uh, they've been pretty reliant on their point guards to run the offense rather than, than giving the ball to secondary ball handlers. But yeah, in spurts that's shown. He can also be an okay rebounder for his position. You know, he does a lot of little things pretty well, and he's a good three-point shooter. That's going to be his calling card if everything goes well in Oklahoma City. Do you have an estimate yet, or not necessarily a prediction that's too strong, of what how comfortable you are with the idea of the Pistons making a playoff run? As you talked about, there are a lot of teams in the mix, and Miami, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the very near future, got a lot better. But Detroit isn't that far out. It's just can they be better than the teams that are in front of and around them? Yeah, I think the Pistons are give or take right there. Uh, there are a few problems, though. Number one, they started the season playing awfully with Josh Smith. They have a 3-19 and anchor dragging their record down. They've definitely played like a playoff team since Christmas. Unfortunately, those pre-Christmas games still count the standings. And the biggest impediment is, is that there are six teams going for two spots, so I'm not sure if I like any of them dramatically better than a 1-3 and shot. And then you consider several of those teams, the Pistons included, but, but other teams in that mix got better today, too. So I'm not sure if these moves are are really going to help Detroit make that playoff push. I don't think they're going to make it, but I wouldn't be surprised either way. So I think when we're talking about the other moves, the place to start with that is Miami. And it's one of the, I would say, one of the gutsiest moves I've seen in a long time because they can get no assurances from Dragic that he's going to stay, and they're doing this to try to fight for the seventh seed. Yeah, I mean, that's really scary. What if he leaves this summer? Then it could go down as... You know, one of the worst trades we've seen in a long time, right up there with, like, the Steve Nash trade. Yeah, and they've also basically locked in that they're trading away this year's pick with it because the pick that they owe now bounced around a few times, but now to the Sixers is top 10 protected, and they're not picking in the top 10 now unless something beyond horrible happens with them. So that means that I was talking about this with somebody before we went on, and what's so fascinating to me about Miami is that they now have committed to giving up two first-round picks for years that they have very few players on, on the books. They have Chris Bosh, they have Shabazz Napier, and that's about it. 
So you can make that bet if you're Miami. I think that they're a team that their cap value is very high because what they can do with their space. But at the same time, empty space is empty space, and that has to be terrifying. Yeah, I think you hit the the nail on the head as far as Miami's a little bit different than other teams because they can attract free agents. It's more important for them than the typical team to have credibility by making the playoffs, by being pretty good, because if they do have some cap space, they're going to get definitely get free agents to look at them. And if they're playing well, then they could get some guys to sign. I think one thing that, it's not a worry, but one thing they have to be concerned with uh, is Hassan Whiteside's looming free agency. You know, if all goes well, you're going to have Drogic probably on a max contract when Whiteside's a free agent. You'll have Bosch on a max contract. And you'll probably have Wade on a very high-paying contract, too. And you need to leave cap room open for Whiteside because you won't have his full bird rights to go over the cap. Yeah, that's a huge point, and I'm really happy you made it because Whiteside is, I mean, not only is he the huge found money X-Factor for the team, but he's a major part of their future now because he's younger than their core and he's playing super well. Right. I, You know, I don't think it's going to be an issue because he's going to be a free agent in 2016 and the cap is huge. So even if you have, you know, Wade, Bosch, and Drogic already on big contracts, he should probably still have enough money to, to offer Whiteside a max contract, which he could deserve by then. I know that the would have sound crazy a few weeks ago, but I, I really think he's right on track to get a max contract with his age and production and position. But it does limit what else they can do because they do have to keep that flexibility open. They do, and Miami has also done a great job recently of signing guys who are good basketball players to short-term contracts. You can think about the Dang contract and the Dwayne Wade contract, which is another huge reason why I have more faith in them than certain other teams like the Knicks to make this work because they can, if they have space, they have shown the ability to stay relevant in the short term but not tie up their books. And a lot of teams, particularly them and Brooklyn, the Knicks in Brooklyn, have not done that. So as long as Riley's there and he's running it, I have the faith that they can strike that, they can walk that tightrope. But it is, it's still a tightrope. Right. I I think you're exactly right. I'll just add that the the collective bargaining agreement is maybe taking away that advantage from Miami a little bit. Now that contract lengths are shorter, Miami's discipline in not handing out long-term deals isn't comparatively as strong as, as it used to be or could have been. That's an excellent point. What teams will start with winners because it's more fun to be positive. What teams do you think walk out of today as the biggest winners in the league? Well, that's a good question. I, I think the Rockets did well to get a couple small upgrades for, for low price with getting K.J. McDaniels and, and Pablo Frigione. I think the Pistons we've been talking about did very well for themselves. Uh, I think the, the Nets are winners getting Thaddeus Young for Kevin Garnett just because Minnesota got sentimental. I think the, the 76ers are very big winners getting draft picks for taking cap space that they would have had to use anyway or money they would have had to spend anyway to meet the payroll minimum. You know, obviously to the 76ers management and owner, it doesn't matter too much whether that money goes to players already on the roster or players they can acquire. So why not acquire some guys and get draft picks in the process? I like what they're doing. Uh, so those are the teams that stood out to me. Yeah, I we agree on, on pretty much all of those. And one that's lingering lingering with me is just the combination of moves with 
the Kevin Garnett trade because the Thaddeus Young portion of the Kevin Love trade was a completely separate thing. It didn't have to happen that way. It wasn't essential. And they basically gave up a what was going to be a respectable pick whenever it came. It was going to be a respectable pick. Not a great pick, but not a terrible pick. For a rental on a team that I don't think anybody thought had a reasonable chance of making the playoffs. And then they you, traded that rental for a sentimental guy who they if they theoretically had tried to try to trade him for the pick that Miami's pick they would have gotten laughed off the planet you know like that's you could call it oh it's the problem of having a coach and a GM no I think it's just the problem of making a really silly trade yeah I I think that's what it is I I will say on one hand in their slight defense they already made that that trade with the 76ers as part of the Kevin Love weekends trade you know, they're, they're stuck with that. Yeah, it was foolish to think they'd make the playoffs, but it's too late now. You just might as well make the most of the position you're now in. But, That's man, Thaddeus Young is a pretty good player. They still could have gotten a draft pick, maybe not as good as the one they gave up. But they could have gotten something that fits with their team's direction, unlike Garnett, who's, you know, over the hill and near retirement. Although, did you see they're talking about giving him a two-year extension? Yeah, I saw that. And with Garnett, what was surprising to me is as somebody who covers the Warriors, I had been having visions of sugar plums dancing in my head of a guy like Kevin Garnett doing a buyout and going to a team that is relevant. And he ended up doing well justified, and I'm happy he did what he wanted because he had a no-trade clause so he can do what he wanted. I was shocked that that was what he wanted. That he was basically like, okay, you know, I'm going to go there, I'm going to do that. And whether he signs an extension, which blew my mind after that happened, after when that when that came out, when the, the speculation was out there, is that I'm like, I just kind of thought, oh, that would have been a really fun piece to throw into this game, and now it's off the board. I don't think Garnett was really interested in, in a buyout anyway, it seems. You know, he, he strikes me as a guy who's very loyal. Uh, who liked what he had going in Brooklyn. I, I know all these, you know, he said he was interested in buying the Timberwolves, but not long before that he had talked about uh, maybe getting the management with the Nets after his playing career. So I, I don't think he was going to hit the market either way. I think it was really going to be the Nets or the, the Timberwolves in, in the end regardless. Yeah, he could be their next coach GM. <laughs> I bet he would do about as good a job as their current coach GM. I don't know. I think he. I think he might do better than that. But the other team you you brought up, and I've been really intrigued by, is the Sixers because the pieces they got, the assets they got, blew my mind. Because the Lakers pick, we've been talking. Everybody who's into this sort of thing had been talking about that asset for years, and they got it. <laughs> they got it in, in in a strange way, and I've been thinking about it since it happened. I was like, what? I was shocked that they that the Suns traded it, just that how everything happened. And what I've been struggling with is that yeah, the Lakers are probably going to keep the pick this year, but it's going to be insanely hard unless there's playoff reform for them to make the playoffs next year. The West is really really good, and no matter how good they're going to get with how the free agent market looks right now, it seems hard for me to think that they're going to make it. So probably what the Suns did is they gave up a 2016 lottery pick, which is great for the Sixers for, for MCW, in my opinion. Well, I'm not even that convinced the Lakers are going to keep it this year. I mean, maybe they finish one of the, with one of the bottom two records and, and lock themselves into it. 
Uh, but if they're a third worse or quote unquote better, you know, the lottery odds are not anywhere near a lock for them keeping it. Uh, so they're going to have their tanking work cut out for them to get to keep it this year. Uh, I guess the other concern is, like we were talking about with Miami, the Lakers are one of those destination teams that benefits more from being good, from being relevant, uh, from even just sneaking into the playoffs, no matter what the payroll is, uh, because that's how they're going to attract free agents. So maybe they are a little bit more aggressive this summer and not as inclined to go through a longer-term rebuild, and that could reduce the value of the pick a little bit. But yes, I agree overall, great pick to get. Just excellent job by the 76ers to pick that up. Have you given any thought to how your former former Piston Brandon Knight's going to do in Phoenix? You know, it's a, it's a strange fit because the Suns went from when Goran Dragic is the guy you want the ball, the ball in his hands number one, that's great. And if Isaiah Thomas is the guy who's number two, that's fantastic. And if Eric Bledsoe is number three, oh man, that's just wonderful. But if Bledsoe and, Eric, and Brandon Knight are sort of the one-two, neither one is a guy who's an elite distributor. You know, they, they distribute pretty well, both of them, and Brandon Knight's made a lot of progress in that department, and so is Bledsoe. But I'm, just, I'm not sure how the fit is going to be offensively. Defensively, I really like him. But offensively, it could be a little bit difficult for both of them to get used to not having someone else helping them a little more, especially the way Jeff Hornacek wants to play. And they still have a lot of guys on their team that are very dependent on that. You think about a guy like Gerald Green or their bigs. They're not really guys that can create their own, so they need that engine on their team. And I agree with you that it's going to be hard for both of those guys to take that role. That's an excellent point. I mean, when when the whole system is reliant on having guys who, who distribute and play fast and make snap decisions with getting the ball to the right place, uh, just a little bit of tinkering with that could have some big effects. I will again advocate for what I've always called the Darren Williams because of when he was traded to Brooklyn, that I still want to see a guy who's an unrestricted free agent get traded for a pretty hearty sum and then return to the team that just traded him because they've just got a bunch of assets. I mean, if Goran Dragic did that and went back to the Suns right now and it was this was all just a really a really awesome game of possum, then the Suns just got a lot better, but I based on what he what he it's reported that he said, I don't think that's happening. That's how he fooled you. So was Robert Sarver in on this plan too? I hate to say yes, but in my dream circumstance, yes. He is so clever. <laughs> But yeah, I, I just just once I would love to see, especially uh, granted, you wouldn't necessarily want to do that in the Sun situation because they're close. But I was thinking about it with Darren because from what I remember, that Jazz team was out of it that year. But if a player ever pulled that off, yeah, he pro- he and his agent would probably be on some sort of blacklist from the rest of the GMs. But oh, it would just be such a such an amazing situation. Imagine if Darren had done that with Utah; they would have gotten favors and all those pieces, and then he just would have gone back. Well, I, I hate to bring this up, but this is kind of a sore point among Pistons fans that, that this happened to us. Uh, the Pistons traded Dennis Rodman for Sean Elliott, who stuck around for a season and pouted and was not happy in Detroit. And as soon as he could, he, he went right back to San Antonio. That's right. I totally forgotten about that. I, oh, apo- I, apo- I, apo- <laughs> I apologize for bringing it up, but I granted, I'm thinking more of the max level guy. But yeah, that's, that certainly did happen there. 
Yeah, maybe maybe the Pistons will go over revenge when they start looking this summer. They're going to need a a small forward, you know. And they look at the market. Maybe Kyle Singler is a guy who makes sense. And Singler, he's going to be unrestricted, correct? He'll be restricted. Oh, he'll be restricted. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because he's wow, he's still on his first contract. Right. He spent a year overseas. That's right. Coming out of the out of the draft, that's what pushed him back. And he's a good player. You know, he's the type of guy who I'm. Sh- he he might end up finding it in, in Oklahoma City, and I'm not going to make the joke that I really, really want to make considering how they responded to Mitch McGarry, but I think he could end up being popular there. <laughs> you don't have to. I don't know where you're going to go with that, but I got it. I, I think, you know, this trade is really good for Singler, too, because I was writing about this earlier today. I like how he fits next to good players. Like, if he can be a role player and just ask to do what he does well, I I think he's a really good fit and valuable in that role. And I thought maybe, and this was before the trade, I thought maybe that team could be the Pistons next year. If they made the right moves around him, they could stop asking too much of him and and put him in position to succeed after re-signing him to a team-friendly contract. Because it really he really hasn't had this opportunity to play that role yet. And so I don't think he's built up his value. That could change in this last part of the season playing with Oklahoma City. And he could be in position to get I don't know, $5 million a year? If he plays well, he could be at that level. Yeah, he definitely could. And the other guy that I was thinking about in terms of, ooh, that's an interesting situation, is another Duke guy, and that's Miles Plumley, Because he's on Milwaukee now, a team that just created a void at center, and he's going to have so much more length and defensive ability around him than he had on Phoenix, so that might make him a very different player. I don't know if that's going to be good or bad for him because I think to some degree he, he shined in Phoenix because he was the guy who could provide that. Uh, mm. So they were more reliant on it. Now in Milwaukee, it might be a little bit easier for him uh, because he'll have that help that more players with length and who play defense. Uh, but he won't stand out as much, and I'm not sure what that will mean for his value. And I feel bad for Tyler Ennis because he goes from a team where he had very little time to a team. Well, actually, I guess he could end up being a back backup there, but he got traded not to a situation that's wide open because they have Michael Carter-Williams, who it appears they really want to have. Well, you'll have to help me on this, but am I wrong? I don't think he had to be included to make the deal work cap-wise, correct? I'm not completely sure, but I think you're right. So he's going to a team that wanted him, and I, sure. I think that that means something. I like Tyler Ennis a lot coming into the draft. I, I think he's the guy who just knows how to play point guard, and that means a lot. Uh, but it's taken him some time, clearly, to get accustomed to the NBA. It, it's not necessarily, necessarily too late for him this season, but I really don't have much expectation for him until next year. But I, I did like him coming into the draft, and I, I'm not off him yet. Yeah, I'm definitely not off him either, and... The uh, the trade that maybe I think you could say surprised me the most, beyond the fact that somehow New Orleans got Norris Cole for John Simmons, and I'll never understand that, is KJ McDaniels. That is shocking. I under the more I thought about it, the more I understood it from Philly's perspective. But it was still so jarring. I'm with you. I I thought the 76ers did a very good job of of what a team in their position should be doing. They scouted. They identified a player in the second round with potential. Uh, I think they've coached him well. I think they've given him opportunities to succeed, and he has. And so I think that's the kind of guy you'd want to keep around. Like you said, though, the problem is he's going to be a restricted free agent this summer. Who knows what kind of offers he'll get. 
Uh, so maybe they didn't want to be in the position of of either having to let him go or or matching an offer that's higher than they want to. Uh, but I, I think I'd rather go down that road than get rid of him for just a second rounder. Yeah, and Isaiah Cannon is a nice player, but he's not essential. I don't think he's going to move the needle a ton even for Philly, though he could be a huge fantasy player for the people who play fantasy basketball. Yeah, he's fine. I mean, I think he's better than the typical guy you could get in the D-League, but not necessarily that much better. Yeah, I think that I think that's definitely fair. I th- he's he's a good player, but he's not yeah, he's not going to be that and I think he has a couple more. I think it's one of those contracts that has some team options. I can I can look it up. But yeah, he's he's a nice guy to have, but he's not going to be. I think a determinant part of their future. I think the biggest sign that that maybe he's not that good of a prospect. The Seventy Sixers traded for him now. They don't <laughs> want anybody who's too good who can help them too much. Yeah, but they're going to be good eventually. I, I'm still sold on their direction as crazy as it would be if I were a fan or more importantly as a season ticket holder I I do have faith that they're going at this in the right direction if you don't have a star yet I agree with one thing you said disagree with one I agree that I like with you that we both like what they're doing we think this is a good plan Uh, but I'm not sold it's going to work out the reason I like it though is there's no plan you can undertake that's a guarantee to work this one included so I I'm I sort of hope it works just for a selfish reason, and then I really don't want to listen to all the people who've been bashing it, saying, see, I told you so, it wouldn't work, because there's just no way of knowing. But the alternative might not have worked either. So I I like what they're doing, but I, I just don't think it's a guarantee to be a success. Oh, yeah, I completely agree with that. That's a That's a great way to phrase it. And the other... I don't know. The other, the one worry I have of it succeeding is that certain owners, and I won't name any names, would use that as a justification for cost shedding that is not as long, not as long vision. It's like, hey, look, look at what the Sixers did. We can do something like that just as a way to unload and, if you want to call it tanking tank or whatever, and that justification would be, I feel like it would be overused even with where the new CBA might be going. That's an interesting point, and maybe some owners would, but really, how many owners, at least let's say in the modern era of the NBA, have had a strategy of we're going to keep payroll down, and this is going to be our way of making money, yeah. and we're just going to, you have I mean, the Donald Sterling, right, and, and otherwise, the general strategy is, if, if you're going to make poor basketball moves to make money, if you're going to spend a little bit in the short term try and put together a mediocre team to sneak into the playoffs and to draw fans, no matter what that means in the long term. Uh, so I, I don't know why one strategy has been preferred so much more than the other over the years, and maybe it's just a copycat thing. Uh, but I do think there's probably some logic when they look at the books and how to, how to manage a team to make money that trying to be mediocre makes a little bit more sense. Well, it definitely makes sense in terms of getting people into the building. And if if you're one of the people who getting getting them in the building is a part of your thing, which it should be, you know, if that's a part of, you know, having a team and running a business, then I can see that. And that's why it worked in some ways with the Clippers is that they had they had a decent fill in the building. The other one, though, I wouldn't say they necessarily did it to save money, but the Warriors 
under Chris Cohan did not spend as much as they could have. And part of the reason they did that is that their fans were showing up anyway. And it's really dirty to do that. But I, I thought since I thought for years that the Warriors did that before the ownership change. Yeah, I know they, it really seems like they did. And you know, it's, I don't envy those fans because you want to go to the games. They're choosing to go to the games, and they were clearly enjoying themselves. Uh, but how else are you going to inspire change? And you're just kind of stuck watching a team that's somewhere between lousy and mediocre for several, several years. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a way to a good way to think about it and the whole process with it. The other move that was notable that we haven't talked about is the Nuggets trading Aaron Aflalo to the Blazers for a pick, Thomas Robinson and Will Barton. A lot of pieces in that trade that I really like. Yeah, I thought it was pretty fair. I liked it for both teams. Aflalo's a good player. I, I'm not 100% told he's a great fit in Denver, but he's a good player in that that probably matters more than anything else. And, yeah. and for Denver, they were the Nuggets were going to lose him in the offseason, I think. So you get a first-round pick and you know, I haven't completely given up on Thomas Robinson. and Maybe you can rehabilitate him a little bit. So, yeah, I, I think it was a pretty good deal for both sides. Yeah, the Nuggets got a few. I like to refer to those guys as lottery tickets in terms of guys that, and the actual pick, that they might work out, they might not, but the the risk is really, really low. And so I, I'm a big fan of Will Barton, too. I was really high on him in that draft. Those of you who want to make me look bad can go look at my old draft columns about Will Barton. I believe they were on the site I wrote on before Real GM. It might have been on Real GM, but I just I loved his potential. He was a guy that I really that I really liked. But what Aflalo brings to Portland is a versatile defender who can who when things are working out can hit open shots, and they're not going to have to ask him to do a whole lot because they already have Wes Matthews and Nikola Batum. And while Batum hasn't played particularly well this year, neither has Aflalo. They can use those two guys, the last two, Aflalo and Batum, so that hopefully one of the two is doing well at a given time. And that will give them both a defensive foundation and guys who make sense next to Damian Lillard. Right. I think that's one of the reasons, sort of what you were saying, that I'm not as big on this trade for Portland as some people, and I still like it for the Blazers. Either Aflalo is going to be somewhat redundant if Batum is playing well, or if Batum is not playing well, then Aflalo's needed a little bit more. But then Portland's not overall as good a team. It's not like they're going to have their starting five plus Aflalo playing well. Um, more likely it's going to be if Aflalo's making contributions it's because Batum has still not snapped out of whatever funk or semi-funk he's been in. It's not like he's been awful or anything, but he's not up to the level we're accustomed to. And the other reason why I think it was a good move for Portland is that, depending on how this cap structure is and everything else, this year might be a stronger year than some of the next couple for them to really make a run, because while the West is really strong, they're a very good team, and we could see some of those teams improve in the near future. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I, I'm a big believer that teams uh, should try and pick up as many draft picks and assets and young assets and movable pieces when they're bad, and then go all in when they're good. Uh, a good example of that is the Cavaliers. You know, they spent years taking on dead weight and salaries, getting draft picks, trading off pieces, and now that they have LeBron, you know, they were primed to make the most of it. And Portland, I think, is following that same strategy to a degree as far as selling off those future picks to be good right now. 
Yeah, I think that that's a good way of thinking about it. And it's another huge difference between the West and the East right now in that sense is that even though Portland is going all in and I think they deserved it, there's a distinct possibility that they get knocked out in the first round, which is insane. I mean, the the West is just so deep, but that's their bad luck of having their run, having their peak come now. But what else are they going to do about it? This is where they are. They're a good team. It's not like they can just sort of kick the can down the road. So you're just sort of stuck with, this is the time you have to go all in. And you're right, it's, it stinks for it to be now because they could be gone in the first round. You know, a, a good team or two in the West isn't even going to make the playoffs. Portland will get in the playoffs, but no, no, no playoff series victory is assured for anybody in the West. I'd like to note, I, it just hit my Twitter feed that while we're having this conversation, that the picks that Miami's sending to Phoenix are a protected 2017 first rounder and an unprotected 2021 first rounder, which just boggles the mind that a 2021 pick is now firmly in a, in a pocket of another team. Well, if I'm not mistaken, that 2017 first rounder is going to have to come two years after the Heat send Philadelphia pick. and. And yes, like we were you're, saying you're before, right. it'll probably be this year, so that there's a chance that it can get pushed back a little bit. Yeah. And, and that, you said that one's lottery protected? No, it just said protected, that we don't know what the protection is yet. But yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting issue. I'm actually going to write on it. that There are all these rules that are in place, because you have the Stipian rule, and then you have other rules that all feed into each other. And so basically, they're going to have to convey these, these three picks now, between now and 2021, but they have a little bit of fungibility in terms of which one won. I think the big thing that's come into play now with these rules, in part the reason, well, obviously very much the reason, uh, and this really swings trades, when you hear, oh, this was a lottery-protected first-round pick, well, what happens if it's not conveyed? Does it become unprotected, or does it become a second-rounder or two? And there's a world of difference between those two. Uh, so we we really gotten to the point where just, these vague general generalities about picks when they're traded, when we hear these initial reports, there's a lot of key information that we're missing often at, at first. So it, it's taking longer, I'd say, than ever to really know if a trade was a good trade or a bad trade. Yeah, I would say that the one that really did that for me recently was the Sacramento pick, the one that, that moved a couple times that now the Bulls have, because that pick, when so it's top 10 protected for a few years, and then once it once that protection goes then it becomes a second which is incredible because you have a pick that could be a could be a lottery pick next year or if the kings are bad two more years in a row it could be basically nothing the kings strike me as as impatient but you look at another team in a similar boat uh, the timberwolves whose protected picks we were talking about earlier you know how long do they want to remain bad what type of patience do they have for rebuilding to where they can pick or choose when they give up a pick or if they're going to try and keep all their first-round picks and, and time it so they're giving up a second-round pick until they get good. You know, it's I don't necessarily agree with the argument that the NBA should get rid of the pick protections, but there are a lot of arguments to be made in, in favor of that. Yeah, and the other the component of it that, in terms of pick protection, what I would think is, is if they're going to keep the draft system the same and by all accounts, that seems to be a part of it, even if they're going to fudge the age limit in the only direction the owners want it to, is that I really don't like protection within the lottery because 
that's what leads to these situations because rarely is a is a protection of a pick with lottery not lottery going to be big enough that a team will elect not to make the playoffs but if it's top 10 protected if it's top five protected that can really affect what teams do in a negative way because what we could see with sacramento is they keep on going for the brass ring until the all-star break and then there they're maybe the 12th or 13th pick and then they fall back to 10 and if you made it right lottery no, I, nothing, I think that's a, an inter. I think it's an interesting compromise where where picks can't be protected within the lottery. I think I think that's a good idea. Limit uh, some trades be a little more selective at times, but yeah, I, I think the overall health of the game would be better if you were not allowed to protect picks within the lottery, and then you could still have protections allowed lottery, non-lottery, or within the postseason picks to protect teams a little bit. I think that's a, an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking about protections. I was thinking about the Pistons in last year, and that was a really crazy circumstance, too. Well, that, <laughs> that one's a little different because smart teams in that position are going to tank hard to make sure they keep their pick. Uh, the Pistons were not that smart. They didn't tank hard enough, and they won a couple extra games, and that cost them a, a fairly valuable pick. We could have had Noah Vonley now. Yeah. You know, Vonley would be a useful piece on this team. I'm trying to think about if there's anybody more damning, but this we haven't seen the, the Giannis's of this draft haven't really come out yet, or the Rudy Gerberts of this draft haven't really come out yet, except for KJ, who just got traded. So we'll, 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 we'll see how that works out. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners? I think we've hit on all the main things from a very, very busy day. Yeah, that was, that was a really incredible day. Well, thank you so much for taking time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yes, yeah, same here as always. Thanks again to Dan Feldman for taking the time to come on. Always like talking to him. You can follow him on Twitter at DanFeldmanNBA. That's D-A-N-F-E-L-D-M-A-N-N-B-A. You can also read him at probasketballtalk.nbcsports.com. It was great having him on. Hope you enjoyed that podcast. I also did one with Nate Duncan of Basketball Insiders, which came out a day before this, but you can hear him in any order. So I would encourage you to listen to that one as well. They're both really fun takes on a similar issue and I like having different conversations on something like that and if you have any input positive negative whatever you can hit me up on twitter at daniel larue d-a-n-n-y-l-e-r-o-u-x or you can email me daniel.larue at realgm.com I do read everything I try to respond to as much as I can and I really do appreciate the feedback so thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood.